Matthew chapter 11 and uh, verses 28 through 30. This is uh, my favorite scripture, I believe, in the entire Bible. And I'm reading it from the Message Translation, and, which is where we get our, our, uh, our series title from. But uh, it goes like this. Are you tired, worn out, burned out on religion? Come to me. Get away with me and you'll recover your life. I'll show you how to take a real rest. Walk with me. Work with me. Watch how I do it. Learn the unforced rhythms of grace. I won't lay anything heavy or ill-fitting on you. Keep company with me and you'll learn to live freely and lightly. Um, Beautiful invitation. And uh, I want to point out three things real quick uh, before we kind of dive into uh, the, the topic of today, but uh, three aspects of this invitation that are important to consider and understand and, and recognize. Uh, number one, what is being offered in this invitation? It, what is Jesus offering to the listener? And uh, obviously he's offering rest for our souls. Uh, what he's offering is a real rest not, not just a day off, not just a vacation, uh, but we're talking about living with rest within our souls, and uh, that is a gift from, from him directly. Uh, who is this being offered to? What's the target audience of this invitation? Uh, anyone who is tired, weary, and heavy laden, anyone that's burned out, anyone who's had enough, uh, anyone who would say the phrase, I can't even, which is my favorite phrase, um, anyone who is just completely overwhelmed and burned out, especially, specifically on this idea of measuring up, living up to some standard, uh, that is what religion is. And the last thing we want to point out before we kind of dive into what we're talking about today, how do we experience this thing practically that's being offered? How do we actually practically live this out and experience it? Well, it's really described in the, in the, in the phrase, the, the sentence that Jesus uh, offers here. He says, walk with me, and work with me, watch how I do it, learn the unforced rhythms of grace. So it's experiential. He's, he's like, come on with me, and you will discover how to live this out. So it's not something that you, you don't get a... This isn't like a seminar where you get 10 steps to do this. Jesus is inviting us to be linked, to be yoked, to be connected with Him. And then as we are, we are... Uh, first of all, that's the, the good news of that is that He does all the heavy lifting. The burden, the weight of the world is on His shoulders. His yoke is easy because He is shouldering the weight of the burden of this world. And, and then also, we, uh, as we are alongside Him, yoked with Him, linked with Him, abiding in Him, we are learning from Him how to live this life in a fulfilling, healthy, and impactful way. And it is something that Jesus Himself teaches us to do. We, we learn that being yoked or linked with Him. We learn how to live this life in a way that's fulfilling, in a way that's healthy, uh, in a way that's, that is impactful to others. And, uh, and so that is the beauty of what's being offered here. He teaches us to live in the unforced rhythms of grace. 
uh, as we talked about last week, that, that is the soundtrack of heaven. The unforced rhythms of grace is the soundtrack of heaven, and it is not the soundtrack of this world. Uh, in fact, the unforced rhythms of grace make no sense to the way this world does business. None. And uh, it, it is completely otherworldly. It is counterintuitive to the ways of this world. And so it is, it is a frequency. It is a frequency that this world just does not pick up on. It does not resonate with this world. And so uh, to quote one of my favorite hymns of all time, Come Thou Fount, uh, it says, Tune my heart to sing thy grace. Uh, tune me in to the frequency of grace. And uh, I think we could expound on that, especially in the conversation we're having this summer. Tune my heart to, to sing my, uh, thy grace, but also tune my heart to hear it, to hear your grace. Tune my heart to see it. Tune my heart to feel it, to understand it, to experience it. Tune my heart to rejoice and celebrate in your grace. But tune me into the frequency of of the grace of God. My, uh, my favorite parable that Jesus ever shared uh, during his time of ministry, you find it in Luke 15. It's uh, a familiar parable. We've all heard it. And in fact, it's so pervasive, it's, it's, the terminology is used just in everyday vernacular, uh, where we, we refer to people as a prodigal son, a prodigal. And so that is my favorite parable, and Jesus, of course, tells the story of these, this father who has two sons, and uh, the two sons are completely different. They could not be further, uh, the polar opposites from each other. One son is, let's face it, a horrible human being. And then you've got this other brother who's the older brother who is exemplary. He is the role model, the paragon or virtue, the, the guy that we would all aspire to be. And uh, at the end of the story, to fast forward to the end of it, uh, and of course we're all familiar with it, but uh, one of these two sons is thrown a party. One of these two sons is celebrated lavishly by the father, and it is certainly not the son that deserves it. Uh, the the, the, the rapscallion, the ragamuffin, the uh, obnoxious, horrible kid that we would all hate to even be near and we would snarl at if he was in our presence because he is just the worst. Uh, he's thrown the party. Meanwhile, the older brother who actually deserves it is left standing outside just completely perplexed. He's like, I don't, I don't, I don't get it. This story, not that I have to remind you, is a story told by Jesus himself. So this is a picture painted by Jesus himself, and he's painting a picture of the counterintuitive, even offensive nature of the grace of our God. It is completely, it flies in your face, and it is offensive, it is controversial, and it, it, it can really upset people. It overturns the apple cart. It knocks the advantages and the privileges out of our hands, knocks us right off our high horse. And Jesus himself is telling this, this story. And, and what he's trying to convey, and what's important to see, is that um, grace 
is something that is not giving, given to the deserving. It is given to people who don't deserve it. Grace is unearned. It is undeserved. It is not merited. It is not, a, it is not something we can, we can work our way towards. It is a gift given to people who don't deserve it. That's, Jesus said, I didn't come for the healthy. I came for the sick. I didn't, came, I didn't come for the together and the holy. I came for the bad and the, the sinner. So this is Jesus telling a story about the, the channel or the frequency where grace works, uh, where grace is received. Grace has a frequency. The rhythms of grace have a frequency. And, and I wanted to share a, a scripture that is mentioned twice in the New Testament, once in the book of James, once in the, in the book of 1 Peter, two different Two different authors, two different perspectives. James, of course, the brother of Jesus. Peter was, we all know Peter, the disciple. He was kind of the knucklehead whom Jesus loved. And, and so this, 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 this same verse is mentioned two times, and it's a paraphrase of a proverb found in Proverbs chapter 3. And, uh, but it, it is so important, and I think it is, it is key to understanding where grace works and the frequency where grace is received or understood. And uh, that statement goes like this. God is opposed to the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Jesus, throughout his ministry, you see uh, certain people who the lights come on and they're awakened to grace. And they were typically outcasts from society. The prostitute gets grace, understands grace, receives grace, rejoices in grace, while the Pharisee is left fuming, stewing in his own juices. It's the same thing with the older brother. The older brother is completely flabbergasted. He is perplexed. He just does not get it. This whole scene does not resonate with him. He can't get over what's just happened. But the younger brother, who is awful, but found himself at a place of desperation, fighting with pigs over pea pods for dinner, he found himself at the, at the bottom of the barrel. And that's, that's who grace is for. Not for the winners, but for the losers. Not for the together, for the un- untogether. Not for the, not for the people who are clean and competent, but for the broken, for, for the people who have reached the end of the rope. That's who grace is for, and it's captured in the statement. God is opposed to the proud. There is a wall there, but He freely gives grace to the humble. Now, you can say, is God's grace conditional? Uh, is God selective, selective who he gives grace to? I think this better captures the idea of who receives that grace. Who sees the need for it? Who opens their arms to it? God is going to give grace and grace upon grace to anyone who comes with arms open. He is not discriminatory against anyone. The Bible says that it's his heart that all would come to know him. But there's a wall there. And there is a a, a closed-off person who is proud. Grace requires open arms, which the depiction here is humility. 
Pride is often referred to uh, by Bible scholars, uh, as we see it in the text, as the central sin. Uh, pride is often called the central sin. In fact, um, if you see, if you consider Genesis chapter 3, the fall in the garden, the, the, the really the, the, the central sin behind the fall, the, uh, the root of that original sin is pride. And the offer was, hey, uh, if you want to become more, if you want to do something in order to become like God, if you want to self-elevate, if you want to take matters into your own hands instead of just trusting God, if you want to then take matters in your own hands and self-elevate and make you better and make this all about you, then this is how you do that. So pride was the root of that original sin. This is something that I think is important to consider as the Bible describes the tree of knowledge of good and evil, uh, there is a statement made that if you eat from this tree, this tree has the power or the ability to make one wise, and then it goes on to say, and it will give that person the ability to discern what is right and what is wrong, what is good and what is evil, the ability to tell what is good and what is evil. And at first glance, you read that and say, it just means to be able to tell objectively, that's good, that's evil. But that's not the original statement. What it's saying is, the person who eats of this tree will then decide what is good and what is evil. To discern what is good and evil is to establish it, to say, that's good and that's evil. That is a proud person. That is pride to be able to say, you know what? I know what's right and what's wrong, and I'm the arbiter of truth and justice and what is right and what is wrong. Suddenly, we have scooched God out of the God role, and we've taken that role ourselves. And to say, I, and, and, and just objectively take a step back and consider the way our world works. Everybody is convinced that they themselves have the barometer of what is right and what is wrong. And they'll tell you, you're right, you're wrong. An objective subject matter with tons of nuance, with lots of different perspectives and angles that I promise you, you have not considered all of them, many facets. The way that any subject affects a human being in a different position in their life versus another, there's a lot of complexities to these to these conversations, but people will plant their flag and say, I'm right, you're wrong, therefore you are evil, and I don't want to have anything to do with you. That is pride. And and really, to even say that I am the barometer of what's right and what's wrong versus the Word of God and what God says, it's pride. In fact, all sin. All sin is humanity's attempt to be its own God. That's what sin is. By the very definition, sin is man's attempt. It's man turned inwards, trying to become his own God. Basically, trying to eliminate the need for God. The need for salvation. The need for grace. God is opposed to that. But he gives grace upon grace to the humble. Uh, In the... NASB translation of Matthew 11, 
which we read a couple weeks ago, uh, the phrase that Jesus gives in this invitation, he phrases it this way. He says, take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart. So Jesus himself describes himself as being humble. If you, if you think about that picture, take my yoke upon you, learn from me, I'm gentle and humble in heart. It requires humility to, first of all, let go of our own yoke and receive his, step under his. Humility is required to say, not my will, but yours be done. My yoke means I'm in control, I'm in charge, I'm the, I'm the captain of my soul, to quote Invictus, which is the most self-righteous, sanctimonious poem ever written. <laughs> I don't need God, I'm the captain of my soul. It is to say I'm directing this, the course of my life, I don't need anyone else's help or guidance, I got it, and I'm going to make it awesome. It requires humility to say, I, I can't do this. I need God. It requires humility to step out from under our yoke and step under His and to let Him take the lead. It requires humility to learn. He says, take my yoke upon you and learn from me. It takes humility to admit we don't know it, everything. We don't, we don't understand everything. There's way more that we don't know than we do. As self-assured as we are in our positions and our opinions, I promise you, you're going to find out when you're face-to-face with Jesus, there is, so, uh, there is a, a wealth of things that you didn't know compared to the very small microcosm of things that you actually do. It, type, it, it requires humility to be teachable, to be willing to learn, to say, I'm, I'm an open book, and I might be 45 years old, but I'm just getting started. Jesus, I need you to lead me and to teach me. And it's not just more information. It's, it's a new way to live. That's what this invitation is about. It's not just, here's, here's a helpful hint. Here's a clever tweet. Here's an inspirational meme. Here's a uh, Tony Robbins seminar. Here is a, uh, a self-help book. It's none of that. He's saying, I I want to revolutionize the way you see the world and see yourself. This is a new way to be human that he is teaching us as we are yoked with him. And he he declares that he himself is gentle and humble in heart, and that's what's required of us. That's what he's asking of us. Jesus' invitation in Matthew 11 is beautiful. It's peaceful. It's, it's this kind of nice little, hey, you tired? You tired, pal? It's like you're talking to a child. And he is. He's talking to his children. Just, you worn out, buddy? You want me to carry you? Yes. But his lead up to this invitation, if you read the whole of Matthew 11, now the last few verses, soft, cuddly, nice, fluffy, it's like Build-A-Bear all of a sudden. The first several verses, the first 27 verses of Matthew 11, and not so nice. Jesus is laying it out and saying, guys, you have missed it entirely. In fact, what he's saying is, is your uh, approaches, your, your, your priorities of self-righteousness are not getting you there, and you are failing miserably. 
your self-righteousness, your self-madeness is not, it's not going anywhere. It's not cutting it. This is what he says. He prays in front of this. This is Matthew 11, verse 25. He prays in front of this, this audience of people who are trying to do this in their own strength. This beautiful, sarcastic prayer. This is Jesus' own divine sarcasm. And I love it. I love to know that Jesus was sarcastic. Because that is one of my spiritual gifts as well. He prays this. I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things, the important things, the things that actually matter in this life. You've hidden these things from the wise and the intelligent. And you have revealed them to infants. (laughs) I love it. He's talking about people who have, since the day they could talk, have been doing their best to measure up and to impress God. And he's saying they don't know anything, the babies know everything. What he's talking about here is is not even the age infants. He's talking about spiritual infants. He's talking about new believers. He's talking about people who, who have not figured it all out, who have not... Uh, who have not figured out all the minutiae of what it means to be a Christian, who have not memorized the Bible, who have not really figured out all the secrets of the spiritual life that we're supposed to live. He's talking about just people who have just been introduced to God like three minutes ago. He's like, those people actually know more than you guys who have been living your life trying to figure this thing out. What, what's offended there? What, what part of us would be offended if we heard that? The part of us that, that is proud. He is he's picking a fight with our pride. And he's causing us to confront it and say, we're approaching Jesus himself as if we have a leg up, we have an advantage. And Jesus is like, you got nothing. I've got everything. You have nothing. Humble Spiritual infants gain revelation that is hidden from the wise, the intelligent, the together, the proud, the boastful. Jesus said this in in Luke chapter 14. All who exalt themselves or puff themselves up, they will be humbled. Life will humble them. And those who humble themselves they will be exalted or lifted up. This is an interesting picture. That if you self-elevate, there's a trap door there where eventually it's a house of cards and it will crumble. But if you humble yourself, you will be elevated and that will never crumble. Because it's God's exaltation, not our exaltation. It's God's elevation, not our elevation. Our own puffed upness is a counterfeit version of something that is real, and that is God elevating us to a different place. This world is proud. Uh, This world is seeking, constantly seeking opportunities to prove, establish itself. This is the selfie generation. If, if you're at any beautiful place, we were at the beach a few weeks ago, any beautiful place, you will see most of the, the, the population on that beach 
spending hours of their time trying to capture the best selfie that has ever been taken in the history of the world. I remember there's little steps going down to the beach, and I had to wait out four teenagers who were right in front of the steps making duck faces in their own cameras. I had to wait them out because they were blissfully unaware of the public lining up to go down the steps to get to the beach because they were, they were like, oh, it's not good enough, it's not good enough. They're trying to capture the greatest selfie. Now, some of that's just fun and being young, but I've got to be honest with you, the, that, the root of that is pride. Pride is pervasive, and we all got it. I'm, I'm being confronted right now in this time in my life with this reality. Anything that I thought that I was even reasonably good at, that was a strength of mine, is coming to the surface, and it's like God is confronting that and saying, nope, can't lean on that. Is being taken, is being repossessed. And it's infuriating and frustrating, and I cuss up here if I could. It is obnoxious. Sonia and I were just talking about this yesterday. She's like, yep, you thought you were good at that, didn't you? And I was like, honey, you're not helping. You're supposed to be my helpmate. But she is helping. It's truth. I think this is why the Apostle Paul, after living a life that, of boasting, living a life of pride and arrogance of being the most holy guy in the world, got to a place where he said, you know what, I, I still boast but I boast differently now. The only thing I boast about, the only thing I brag about, the only selfies I take are involving my own weaknesses where I can't as opposed to what I can do. Where I miss the mark as opposed to where I've hit the target. Where I fall short as opposed to where I've arrived. If you let it, the, I, I said this years and years ago, and it's based on just scripture, but may we all outlive our egos. Maybe, maybe fast forward that journey and, and, and get to a destination of humility earlier than later, but, but eventually all the things that we lean on, all the things that we make the deal, whether it's physical fitness or beauty or wealth or achievements or accolades or whatever it is, all that stuff fades the legendary Judge Judy Scheinlin wrote a book called Beauty Fades, Dumb is Forever. <laughs> the things that we lean on so heavily that are superficial, that are temporary, those things, they go away. And I think this is why the scripture teaches us, you build your foundation, you build your life not on sinking sand, but on the firm foundation of who Jesus is. That is eternal. And the, the rebar, that foundation, that part of the, 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 the footers that are being poured in that foundation are poured through humility. Recognizing and realizing how desperately we need Jesus and how we are completely lost without him. Our righteousness, the best things about us, ultimately account for filthy rags. We bring nothing to the table but the sin that makes his sacrifice so necessary. 
I want to close with this last, this couple verses and uh, a section of scripture in Philippians uh, chapter 2. And I uh, just want to read a few verses there and then we'll wrap up. And, and I think this, this gives a beautiful uh, perspective on the priority of humility. And then we'll end talking about how do you get there? How do you become humble? Philippians chapter 2, verses 3 through 8. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit. That's pride. But instead of that, with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also the interests of others. Have this attitude in yourself, which is also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, being made in the likeness of men, being found in appearances of men. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. The Apostle Paul, in, this, in these verses, is encouraging us to strive for the goal of humility. And even to the point where we uh, embrace moving beyond ourselves into a deferential place where we're actually preferring others. That we are, uh, we, we actually, we would be the last person in line and we would put everyone else first to love them, to serve them. And then he roots that in a focus on Jesus. The first few verses we read, this is, this is what we should aspire to. Humility of mind, preferring other people even beyond ourselves. And then the last few verses that we read, all of it's about how humble and deferential and sacrificial and loving and serving Jesus is. And he always does this. The Apostle Paul does this with all of his, all of his letters. He talks about what we should do, what we should aspire to be, what it looks like to really trust God, practically. But then he doesn't send us out there to try to make it happen. He follows it with, this is how you get there. Put the focus on Jesus. He talks about Jesus being that for us. And the more we we focus ourselves on what Jesus is for us, the more those qualities begin to show up on the, the, the tree of our lives. That we become like Him. As we behold Jesus, we are becoming more like Jesus. So He doesn't say, hey, you're selfish, you're, you're prideful, you're annoying. Stop it. He says, we should aspire to love and prefer other people, but the only way you're going to get there is by focusing on the fact that Jesus loved you and preferred you so much that he would go to the cross and die a sinner's death for you. C.S. Lewis uh, said famously, humility isn't thinking less of yourself. Instead, it's thinking of yourself less. It's not the conversation moving to how bad you are, how undeserving you are, how naughty you are, how bad you should feel about yourself. That's not the conversation because that conversation takes you absolutely nowhere. In fact, it, it, it will sink you. It will erode you. The gospel is not the bad news of you. The gospel is the good news of Jesus. 
And so the conversation is not how bad and undeserving you are. It is, look how good He is. Look how amazing He is. And so when you do that, what's happening is you're moving outside of yourself being the key, the cornerstone, the foundation, and you're fixing your eyes on the true source and the true foundation, Jesus. You're moving outside of you and you're fixing your eyes on Jesus. He is the author. He is the finisher of our faith. Jesus doesn't tag us in and say, hey, I died on the cross. You're it. Good luck, Godspeed. I remember this quote from a pastor years ago. Hey, do your best and God will do the rest. The gospel says, Jesus has done for you what you could never do for yourself in a million years. He has done the best. He's given you the best. Now enjoy the rest. That's a way better statement. (laughs) Jesus has given everything. Our job is to receive everything. This is a, um, this picture in Philippians 2 is a picture of of what it looks like to live beyond yourself. It's a life that is engaged with the people in this world, falling in love with the people of this world, regardless of the differences that we might have, falling in love with them because Jesus loves them, and then giving ourselves to love and serve and better this world. Heaven coming to earth through us, the vessels that he has created. We're in a bad place when we look at the call of Christianity and the call of faith as being, I listen to an encouraging message and then I go about my business. That is not at all what Jesus gave his life for. He said, I will build my church. The gates of hell will not prevail against it. What does that mean? He's bringing us together. His heart, his prayer, his prayer, and this was not a sarcastic prayer, by the way. His prayer was, God, make them one as we are one. Bring them into the family so that we could do this together. We are the body of Christ. We abide in the vine. We're connected. If you're a branch, you're unfruitful, unproductive, and helping no one. He is grafting us into the vine. But what that requires is humility. To say, this isn't all about me. I'm trying my best to remove this phrase from from my vocabulary, and, and, and I encourage you maybe to try the same. I don't feel like it. I've I've tried my best to remove that. I don't know that many people have ever heard me say that. But I'm trying my best to remove it because when am I ever going to feel like taking time to love and serve other people? And the truth is, my feelings don't tell me what to do. I tell my feelings what to do. And feelings are supposed to be this beautiful, uh, it's supposed to accentuate life, but it's not supposed to guide and direct life. We follow Christ, not our feelings. Faith, greater than sign, feelings. And truthfully, if you're really walking and living by faith, it will confront your feelings. It will confront your fears because faith is anything but comfortable. The strength that we have to do that, the only strength that we have to do that, to live beyond just those feelings, to to walk not in pride, but in humility, 
to prefer others, to be grafted into the body of Christ, to be yoked with Christ, to abide in the vine. The only thing that really compels us to do that, drives us to do that, is a focus on Jesus. To see Him clearly. Because that's who He is, and that's what He does. And the more clearly we see Jesus, the more we feel compelled to be like Jesus. But we have to choose to be yoked with Him. We have to choose to be connected to Him. And that happens as we, as we view Him clearly, as we view Him as He is. Not some weird interpretation of how this world is, has defined God or whatever, or religion, but seeing Jesus for what He, what he truly is. The product of that, the, the, the beauty of that, is that as the more we fix our eyes on Jesus, the more we start to receive and feel and experience His grace for us. We abide in the vine, we receive grace. We're connected with Him, we, we receive grace. We view Him in His heart for us, we receive grace. The, the Bible says, boldly approach the throne of grace. It is grace upon grace upon grace. And the more we fix our eyes and understand Jesus, His love and grace for us, and that inbox begins to fill up. And it's only then that our outbox begins to fill up with grace for others. Have you ever found yourself short-fused, impatient, upset, frustrated, with the stupidity of this world, with the absolute boneheads that fill up this planet? Have you ever just looked at one person flabbergasted, open mouth, just in utter and complete shock at their complete insensitivity and stupidity? Have you ever wanted to really address someone's shortcomings directly? (laughs) Using words or more? Have you, have you found yourself getting to a place where you're like, I just, I don't want to be around any humans ever again. I think I've said that this week. Let me tell you something. The only way that we're ever going to have grace for each other and for the people that God brings into our life for a reason is to focus on the fact that we are the prodigal son that the Father runs breakneck to fall on us and welcome us home with nothing but love, grace, and redemption and forgiveness. We are the undeserving that God loves and God died for. We do not deserve it. And the more you understand and recognize God freely gave me His, His Son to open the floodgates of grace over my life, it's only then that the outbox begins to fill up with grace for other people. Because you realize we're all in the same boat. We all sin. We just sin differently from each other. We all fall short. We just fall short in a lot of different ways. We're unique in our ability to fall short. But don't have grace for other people. Don't not have grace for other people just because they sin differently than you. It's like, well, that's not my brand of sin. May we all have an abundance of grace for others because we have an abundance of grace from our God.